Wonders of Creation is so fascinating and so enjoyable to study because you can see in nature the wisdom and the amazing kindness that Hashem does from the human body, which maybe is the most amazing and impressive, all the organs, the cells, all the enzymes, every protein that's so beneficial, going from trees, plants, animals, the rain cycle, all the phenomena that are so beautiful from the stars in the sky to the sea creatures in the ocean. Everything is just so inspiring. So I hope you enjoy this series a little bit about the wonders of creation. Let's start with some sources, starting with Tehillim chapter 19. The heavens speak of the glory of Hashem. If you just look at the sky, that's how you see that's the greatest speech that illustrates Hashem's honor and it shows kavod. What's more majestic when you look up than the sky? And the sky declares about the handiwork of Hashem. What, the, what great architect could make the blue, tremendous, overwhelming sky with the gorgeous clouds? And in Tehillim Kuptalad it says, Ma Rabba Ma'asecha Hashem, Kulam Asita. How many are the works that Hashem has created? And He made them all with the wisdom. All of the cycles and systems and nature of all organisms have such not only kindliness, but wisdom. It's more advanced than the fanciest supercomputer that ever will be invented. Malaha Aretz Kinyanecha. All the creations of Hashem fill the earth, and it's our job to study them and to be inspired by them. There's a Midrash in Breshis Rabbah. 10.6, that says, Barsira Amar, Samim Mina Aretz. Hashem brings forth drugs or spices, medicants from the earth. Behem a doctor can use them to heal people. Asamaka, if someone has a wound, there's a certain plant of certain herb that they find in the rainforest or who knows where they're being discovered and invented all the time. And not only medical assistance and benefits, but also for culinary arts, for aromas. There's all kinds of concoctions that you can make from the plants in the rainforest. That even goes further to say that every blade of grass has a mazel, it's kind of like an angel on top of it, that hits it and says, grow, grow. So all of these are works of Hashem that are all being orchestrated and developed, each one for its purpose. That's what it says in Eov. Do you know the laws of heaven? The Do you know how the heavenly bodies operate? And can you place its authority on earth? Loshan Shoter, that means someone who's regulating it. Hashem is the one who's regulating all the planetary systems and the solar systems. Can you tie, this is also from Eof chapter 38, can you tie binds on the Pleiades or cords on the Orion Lucent? In other words, all these grand constellations, heavenly bodies, they're all in the control only of Hashem. It's all overwhelming to us. If we think we can understand even one drop of it, we have to try, but it's completely beyond. 
The Pleiades binds the fruits, and the Orion pulls from binding to binding. All these works of nature that are going on. Can you bring out the zodiac in its season? Ursa Major with her sons, can you lead? The constellations are have such a tremendous procession and it's all precise and it all goes according to grand, majestic. It's like an orchestra. A constellation is a mazel because it stretches. It's memazer out the fruits. The development of fruits do we know even one tiny bit of what goes into the fruits? How it receives nourishment from the sun? How it receives rain? How What influence the stars have? That's really beyond. From Eov, chapter 12, we see, Ask the beasts, and they will teach you. Ask the birds of the sky, and they're going to tell you. Speak to the earth. The earth will teach you. Speak to the fish of the sea, and they're going to let you know. Who among all these creatures doesn't know that the hand of Hashem has made all this? All the world, all these wonders, is made by God, is made for, by the benevolent creator. In Hashem's hand is every living soul and the breath of all mankind. We're all at the mercy of Hashem, who created us, created this beautiful world that we live in. And then the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam, tells us, A person should love and fear God, but what's the way to love? And what is the way to achieve fear of Hashem? When a person contemplates the creations that are so wondrous and amazing that Hashem made, there's endless wisdom in a single cell, in a single molecule of DNA, how much wisdom there is. And that's the easy, that's the simple stuff. That's the tiny stuff. The locates, there's no limit to the wisdom that goes into one mitochondria, one uh, RNA transcription. How does all that work? It's endless wisdom. So a person looks at this, a person studies a little bit of the creation. In every corner, there's such vast wisdom. So a person is going to fall in love with Hashem, the Creator. In Tehillim chapter 42, it says, My soul is yearning for Hashem. My soul is thirsty for Hashem. The God of the God of life or the living God. A person is gonna almost topple over when he thinks about these things. He's gonna be in almost uh, dread. Because look, what are we? We're just a tiny creature, a tiny speck in this universe. Even the smartest person. We think we're so smart, but compared to the whole vastness and the wisdom of the universe, Deus, we're just tiny compared to the one who created all this. I will see. David Melch was a shepherd. He, in chapter 80 of Tehillim, he says, he's going to look at the sky. And he's going he's to see the 
work of Hashem's fingers, so to speak. This is the handiwork of Hashem. The vast sky, the stars, the clouds, the constellations. What is man? We're just such a humble thing. That Hashem even remembers us. The Rambam continues that based on all this, I, the Rambam, am going to explain great principles of Hashem. Because to know how the universe operates and is structured, so that brings a person to love Hashem. You study the creation, so then you're going to come to love the one who created the one who made it. And the Chavos Alavavos in the Shara Bechina, that's the second Shara, in part 5, 55 to 56, we find this. One of the most important subjects on which you should reflect is the wonderful gift that God gives to living cre- living creatures and plants, which is the rain. Now, the rain, besides being free water supply that comes from the sky, and it comes to the ocean, so it's a recycled system. And it's a desalination system because it's all salty in the ocean that carried all the sediments and minerals from the land when it streamed through from the rivers. But when it goes up into the clouds, it's uh, distilled into its purest form. But besides falling in its due season, it descends in showers when needed. So when the plants and when humans... And when the grass and when the crops, when all they need, when they need water, Hashem provides it. And we see that whenever there's a drought, we see, oh, it's such an exception to the rule. Well, what about all the times that it does work? And it says in Yirmiyahu chapter 14, are there any among the vanities of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? I'm sure of the greatest scientists probably are working day and night to try and come up with a way to control the weather, to give rain, but only Hashem could do it. Are you not he? Hashem, God, therefore, since only Hashem is in control of the rain, therefore we hope only to Hashem, for you have made all these things. It's like in places where there's a Nile River that provides plenty of water for the crops. So a person may not turn to Hashem as much or as desperately. But places like Eretz Israel are places where there's a limitation of rainfall. So with only one that we can rely on, only Hashem is in charge of giving sustenance and providing rain, water to the crops, to the, which feeds the whole world. Neither they, <clears throat> neither say they in their heart, now let us fear Hashem, God, that gives rain, both the former and the latter, in due season. That reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Hashem makes the cycle of the crops go according to the rain, according to the sun as well. Now, a person sees that and doesn't recognize to be in awe of and love and fear Hashem. So that's, that's really a tragedy because that's such a great accomplishment if we can... If we can do that. The importance of the rain, you will find also it's emphasized in chapter 5 of Sefer Eov, the Chavos HaLavavos cites. It says, Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, who gives rain upon the earth and sends water upon the fields. And how does he do it? And not with pipes, not with hoses, not with the irrigation system. It's all in midair. It's pumped up through the evaporation of the sun up to the clouds. And then the wind blows them over the land where the crops need it <clears throat> so that he sets upon high those that are low and those that mourn are exalted to safety. Hashem is in control of, of all of this. How astonishing too is the growth of food from seeds. A single grain that has been saved from mishaps can produce a thousand grains and more. If you take one seed of corn or one seed, 
seed of grain, of wheat, of barley, whatever it is, you can use that to reproduce countless, if you just repeat the process, thousands upon thousands of offspring from one seed. And it's been stated that even one grain out of wheat, as many as 300 ears will spring up, each containing over 20 grains. So we'll come across gigantic, gigantic trees whose roots have sprung out of a single seed or a single shoot have increased many times as much as those mentioned. It's such a tremendous growth from a tiny seed comes a vast growth of a tree or crops, all of which have fruits, apples, oranges, wheat, barley, all of this that we can use to make bread, to eat, to sustain us, to sustain the animals. And if we eat animals who are sustained by the fruits and vegetables, so we in turn are benefiting that way. So praise be the all-wise and gracious one who brings into existence such vast effects from causes so small and so weak. Think about it. The whole world is fed from a supply, let's say, of eating animals, if we eat meat, from fruit and vegetables, if we eat vegetation. And what does that come from? Let's say a cow eats grass and drinks water. And the fruits and vegetables, they come from a tiny seed. So it's all from a tiny inception. It comes to be the great feast which Hashem feeds the world with. As it says in the Pesach in the second chapter of Sefer Shmuel, and by him, by Hashem, actions are weighed. The foods assigned to different living creatures are too numerous to specify. You have cows that eat the grass. You have sheep as well. You have monkeys that eat bananas. Every food is designed, every creature is designed. Each one has their own particular diet. And the wise man, when he reflects on them and understands their causes, will recognize the supreme wisdom of the creator's plan. Concerning these things, David Melch said in Tehillim, chapter 124, all of them wait for you that you may give them their food in due time. You give it unto them that they gather it and you open your hand and they are satisfied with good. We say this, that Hashem is the one who provides. He is the great provider of the pantry of the universe of this world that has so many crops, food and drink, all delicious and all healthy. If we just choose the right ones, then we're in good shape. Hashem is providing plenty. He says further, also in the Chobos Olavos, I will clarify this topic further in the gate of trust with God's help. That's another place to look to study this. It reminds me a little bit of the theory of Thomas Malthus, who was afraid that, and he was convinced, that the human population would die out, and the only solution was that we should have to stop having so many children, and we should limit the population, because the children grow at an exponential rate. If every pair of parents has four children, and then each of them has gets married, and they have four children, and so on, so then it grows geometrically, exponentially, but the food supply only grows linear, linearly, at least at that time. But what he didn't realize is that technology and human insight was going to find a way of producing crops that are now, now there's even more food that we know what to do with. So it's all in the power of the soil, the seeds, sunlight, rain, wind, carbon dioxide, all these resources that Hashem gives us. And there's seems to be an endless supply. All again from the Chovas Olivelos, from Shar Cheshbon Nefesh, that's the eighth Shar. In part three, 179, he says that seeing God in nature, how do we do that? To investigate all that exists in the universe from the smallest creations to the largest. Imagine if we could do that. And the superior qualities human beings have in the world and the levels of creation below and above. 
you know, an ant has a level of sophistication above a microbe, and then mammals above that, and then humans, even the most sophisticated, take the human brain, take the organ of the eye, take all these creatures, and there's the small, the medium, the great, and the arrangement of the heavenly spheres. Look up in the sky, the movement of the sun, the moon, the stars, such beautiful orbits. Those Some are stationary, some move. The falling of the rain, the blowing of the wind, the emergence of a baby from the womb, something amazing. I think it's the Chavos Halavavos who points out that when uh, an egg is hatched, and there's a similar parallel by when a baby is born, when an egg is hatched, it has to be the shell so hard that it's not going to break when it's coming out of the chicken. It has to be soft enough and not too hard so that the baby chick can peck its way out with its beak. So it's everything is just in the right balance. Also, the when a baby comes out, it can't be too tight that the baby's not able to manage to come out. It has to come out eventually to the oxygen and to breathe and to start its life outside of its mother. But it can't be also too loose that you don't want the baby to fall out. And all other wonders of the Creator, which are more wondrous and more subtle, and they're more apparent and more mysterious, and they teach the, about the perfect wisdom of Hashem and His power and His good guidance and His all-encompassing grace, His mercy that He has upon us, and His abundant providence over His creations. There's a fascinating Gemara in Eruvin Daf Kofamud Beis, and it says, Let's say the Torah wasn't given, and we didn't have the instructions from Hashem. So how do we know how to act properly? So that's something else that we can learn from nature. We can learn from the wonders of creation. We would learn how to be modest from a cat. We know that a cat doesn't do certain things that are supposed to be done in private. Nobody ever sees a cat do those things because he knows to go behind a tree or he knows to go to hide out before doing those things. The gazel A person could learn not to steal. got to be honest. Who is the most industrial, who is the symbol of industry and not being lazy and also being honest, not taking things that doesn't belong to them? So that's an ant. So we should learn not to steal from an ant, even if Hashem wouldn't have told us. Varayos Miyona. Who's, who's the, what can, what's considered a faithful relationship between two people that love each other? Or in this case, two animals. Doves. So one is faithful to the other. And we would learn also Derech Eretz Mitarnigol. The list goes on. Uh, a chicken shemafayes v'acharkach boel. There's not just some kind of, as we would call it, animalistic relationship. No, even in intimacy, uh, chicken with one with the other. So there's a degree of pius and appeasement beforehand, before they engage in that. There's a mission in Perkiyovus that we all could learn a great lesson from this, and maybe we've read this before, but it's something that we're going to conclude with, and that is in the third chapter in the seventh Mishnah, Rabbi Elazar Ish Bartosa Omer, Tain lo mishalo, shalcha Give Hashem that which is His. I should give Hashem which is rightfully His, because I belong to Him, and everything that I have is also from Hashem. In Hayamim it says in chapter 1, Kimimcha hakol, Hashem, everything comes from you. So anything that we give to you, we give donations, we give gold and silver, we give... <clears throat> gifts, so to speak, for tzedakah, anything that we give and donate, anything we donate to Hashem or to the base of Mikdash. So it's from that which Hashem already gave us. So we're giving it from your own hand, Hashem, we're giving it back to you. And Rabbi Shimon Omer, this is a fascinating. Someone who's walking on a path and he's learning, and he's learning the Torah, the word of Hashem, the one who gave us all this creation, the laws of Hashem, he interrupts. <laughs> 
his study of the, and his review of the laws, and he looks over at the tree and he says, Ma na how beautiful is that tree? Uma na how how wondrous is that field? Because think of it, if we're just marveling at the wonders of creation, that's not enough. If we're learning the laws of Hashem, that's what he wants us to be studying. And with that, we'll conclude this small introduction to the wonders of creation from the great, wise, and kindly, and merciful creator who gave it to us. Thank you for listening. These are some insights about wonders of creation from creation.com. So first, how did life originate? There's an evolutionist whose name is Professor Paul Davies, and he admitted that nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organized themselves into the first living cell. Andrew Knoll, who's a professor of biology at Harvard, he said, we really don't know how life originated on this planet. Because there's something very fascinating, that a minimal cell, not talking about the complicated cells, a minimal cell, the basic, a minimal cell needs several hundred proteins. So even if every atom in the universe were an experiment, with all the correct amino acids present for every possible molecular vibration in the supposed evolutionary age of the billions of years of the universe, not even one, not even one average size functional protein would form. So how is it that life with hundreds of proteins originated just by chemistry without anyone designing it? Obviously, there's a great wisdom and kindliness behind this act of creation. Another thing to think about is DNA. How, how did the, There's a code in DNA, an alphabetical program. So how did that originate? The code in DNA is a sophisticated language system with letters and words where the meaning of the words is actually unrelated to the chemical properties of the letters. Just as the information on a page that you read is not a product of the chemical product, uh, chemical product properties of the ink or the paper. What other coding system has existed that you can think of without someone designing it, without an intelligent designer? How could it be that the DNA coding system arose without being created? What about mutations? This is something that geneticists like to talk about. Mutations are accidental copying mistakes, which means that letters in the DNA got exchanged or deleted or added or genes got duplicated or there's a inversion of a chromosome so there's huge volumes of information in the dna that unless you believe that it was created by a benevolent intelligent designer so there's so much information and so much complexity and so much specific instructions of how to reproduce life just happening by mistake? How could how could errors create three billion letters of DNA information to change from a microbe all the way up to a human being? There's information for how to make proteins, but not only that. There's also information for controlling the use of the proteins. Like you have a cookbook contains not just the ingredients, but it contains also the instructions of how to use the ingredients and how much and when to use them. If you have one and without the other, then it's really going to be useless. So all this information is packed in there. Mutations are known, as a matter of fact, not for their beneficial effect, like evolutionists, evolutionists might claim. 
but mutations are known for their destructive effects, including 1,000 human diseases, such as hemophilia. I mean, why do you, why did the, why did the dentist go out of the room or why does the um, technician put on a lead vest when they turn on the x-ray machine? Because you don't want x-rays affecting your genes. You don't want mutations. Mutations are bad. So scrambling an existing DNA, DNA information would not create a new biochemical pathway or nanomachines that have so many components. It, it would not be possible. For example, there's a there's a 32-component rotary motor, like ATP synthase, that actually produces the energy that produces the 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 energy for all of life. Now, that wouldn't be possible, even though that's one of the more simple machines, or a robot like Kennison, which is the postman of the organisms who delivers parcels inside inside the cells. So, how did those originate if they weren't designed? Now, people talk about natural selection. So what about it? It's a principle that's recognized by people who accept creation, natural selection. But it's there's a mistake that it's taught sometimes as evolution, as if the natural selection explains the origin and the diversity of life. But it's not really correct to put it that way, because by definition, it's a selective process. It's selecting from information that already exists. It's not a creative process. So it might explain the survival of the fittest. You have certain genes that benefit creatures more in certain environments because they're able to reproduce and to access food and to outcompete their neighbors. But it wouldn't explain the arrival of the fittest. In other words, genes and creatures, where do they come from in the first place? So that natural selection doesn't explain. The death of individuals who are not adapted to an environment and the survival of those who are suited to the environment is true, but it doesn't explain the origin of the traits that make an organism adapted to an environment in the first place. In other words, for instance, how does the the minor, there are, there are back and forth variations in, for example, the beaks of finches. A bird could have a small beak, a larger beak, a beak in a certain shape to help it to eat seeds, but that doesn't explain the origin of a beak, or it doesn't explain the origin of where did the finch, where did the bird come from? Now, what about enzymes? New biochemical pathways involve multiple enzymes, not only just one enzyme working on its own, but there's multiple enzymes that work together in sequence. How did that all originate? Every pathway and every nanomachine requires multiple protein and enzyme components to work. So, so if it's all just a series of lucky accidents, how did they create even one of the components, let alone 10 or 20 or 30 of them working together at the same time, in sync, in collaboration? And as often, this is a necessary programmed sequence that's needed for life. So there's, a, there's an evolutionary biochemist whose name is Franklin Harold, and he wrote that we must concede that there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of the evolution of any biochemical or cellular system, only a variety of wishful speculations. Something that Richard Dawkins said, he wrote that biology, in his work, The Blind Watchmaker, 
Biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix structure of DNA, he wrote that biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather it evolved. He says that in What a Mad Pursuit, a personal view of scientific discovery. The problem for evolutionists is that living things show too much design. Does anybody object to, if an archaeologist says that a pottery points to human design? So that's not a problem. Everyone accepts that. But if someone attributes the design of living things, which is 10,000 times more complicated, to a designer, so that's not acceptable. Why should, why, why should it be that science is restricted to naturalistic causes rather than causes of a divine creator? Something that is important to recognize as, is it evidence or is it not evidence, the fossil record. So according to evolution, there should be, there's an expected countless millions of transitional fossils, but they're not found. And Darwin himself actually noted this problem and the problem still remains because the evolutionary family trees and textbooks are based on not observation from the fossil evidence, but they're based on the imagined theory of what it would be if its evolution would be true. Evolution would lead from the trunk to the branches to the leaves of this evolutionary tree, but all that's observed in nature is really the, the leaves and the different species that don't show a transition from one to the other. Now, there's a Harvard paleontologist who's uh, no longer alive. He was, an he was one of the chief evolutionists, Stephen Jay Gould. He wrote, that the extreme rarity, he's talking about the fossil record, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. They come up with explanations as to why there are no transitional fossils found between disparate species. So they have to explain it's such a giant gap that they were expecting, and Darwin himself was expecting to find that. But in his time and in our time, we don't find it. There are, however, there are other evolutionist fossil experts who, who acknowledge this problem as well. Something else that's kind of a conundrum for, for the theory of evolution is that how is it that living fossils, quote, they remain unchanged over supposed hundreds of millions of years? In other words, if evolution has changed worms into higher organisms and you know from little bacteria or from little microbes, we become human beings. So why in the same time frame do a number of examples, such as the horn crab, they, the horseshoe crab, just stay the same. Professor Gould, again, he writes that the maintenance of stability within species must be considered as a major evolutionary problem. Because if the whole sequence of organisms on the earth is going forwards and marching towards progress, so why should these unsophisticated and simplistic organisms remain around? That's, that's, as an, that's a, an anomaly, like a living fossil. It should, they should have been wiped out. They should have been outcompeted. Now, how did, how could it be that blind chemistry created a human mind or intelligence or morality? If everything evolved and people just invented the idea of God, according to what the evolutionists say, so what purpose or meaning is there to human life? Many times the 
explanations that evolutionists give are flexible storytelling to try to explain the observations that are contrary to the evolutionary theory. There's um, NAS USA member, Dr. Philip Skell, he wrote that Darwinian explanations for such things are often too supple. Natural selection makes humans self-centered and aggressive, except when it makes them altruistic and peaceable. Or natural selection produces virile men who are eagerly spread their seed, except when it prefers men who are faithful protectors and providers. When an explanation is so supple that it can be explain any behavior, it is difficult to test it experimentally, much less use it as a, as a catalyst for scientific scientific discovery. I think it was Stephen Jay Gould who, who remarked about the certain organism's development that it was found in a certain way, and therefore the evolutionists came up with an explanation as to why it was the, in that environment and why it was best suited. So he said that in our, in our heart of hearts, we know that if we had found it in another circumstance, we could have cooked up just an equally good explanation. In other words, it's like painting the target around the arrow after we make, fire our shot. So this has been a little bit about creation and evolution, and I thank you for listening.